All right, that's it by way of announcements. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn in them to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. And as you begin to turn there, I'm going to kind of give you a phrase to consider. I'm not sure I can ever worship with that person again. I'll say it again. I'm not sure I can ever worship with that person again. Friends, this is a phrase that I have heard many times over the course of the last year and a half. It is a phrase that most pastors have heard many times over the course of this last year and a half. And it is usually in response of a person who is looking at how another Christian is responding to things like a pandemic or to race or to politics. Thankfully, some of you have worked through that. You've gone to other brothers and sisters. You've, you've gotten to a place where you're like, no, actually I can go and worship alongside of them. And I, I praise the Lord for that. That is the Spirit's work. But, but even today, I'm venturing a guess that as we are standing together to sing these amazing songs, to worship the God of the universe, there is a reality that there is likely a person sitting across from you who you can't quite stomach. And that sentiment is still reverberating in your heart. Maybe it's because you know their vaccination status. Maybe it's because they are or aren't wearing a mask. Maybe it's because you know who they voted for. And you're just really struggling to simply worship with them. Friends, here's my question. If we claim to follow Jesus Christ, is this a position that we can actually hold. Can we hold that position? So I'm just going to show you my cards at the outset because I don't believe we can. I don't believe we can. In fact, if we do take that angle, I would argue that we're taking up the cultural plot line and we are making it our own narrative rather than taking up for ourselves the narrative of the gospel and God's word. A pastor who has influenced me greatly, a man named Matt Chandler, he, he would argue this in this season. I love it that he puts it this way, that, that in the church in America right now, many people are choosing where they worship and who they worship with based off of ideology rather than theology. Ideology being uh, systems that humans put together and create versus theology, a true study and understanding of God in His Word. Anthony, why would you come down so hard and make such a clear statement that I don't believe that should be the heart posture of another follower of Christ towards another brother and sister? Well, I would just say this. If we just look at examples, we'll get into Ephesians 2 in just a minute and begin to make a three-week argument from that place. But, but I would say this. Read our Bibles. Look at the disciples. You know, two disciples. Let's just take two of them. Simon the Zealot, who followed Jesus. He hated big government, if you will. In fact, zealots were known to kill people who were associated with the government. Then you talk about Matthew. Guess what Matthew was? A tax collector. Who did he collect money for? The government. And actually oppressed folks like Simon. They followed Jesus together. They worshipped him together. They were the, the foundations, apart from Christ, of the church. How about Acts chapter 6? Acts chapter 6, we have a church in turmoil. 
Uh, you have the, the Hebrew Christians, converts to Christianity, and then this influx of immigrants because of this dispersion that was happening of the Hebrew, or, or I'm sorry, of um, the Greek-speaking Christians. Uh, so they were flooding into the church, and they're trying to figure out what life together looks like. And the, and the Greek-speaking Christians go, hey, you are ignoring our widows. You are feeding your widows, but you're practically letting our widows starve. That, that's not okay. What happened in that moment? Was there a church split? Were the Greek Christians like, we're going to the first whatever church of whatever this town is over here, and we're going to go worship over there? Now, do you know what happened? This is actually the context for the first, they call it the proto-diaconate, right? The first kind of template of a deacon, of a set of deacons, happens in this book. And, and if you do a close look at the names of who they elected to these roles, their names are all Greek. You know what that means? This predominant kind of influential culture in the church, the Hebrew culture, said, hey, we do want to address this. We want to raise up a group of people who will care for all sets of widows. And so they empowered these folks who are coming into the church say, not only care for your widows, but also care for ours. Last example, book of Galatians. Paul and Peter. Peter was in some serious theological error. I mean, that dude, you're just wondering, is he, is he even a Christian? You wonder that a lot about Peter if you read the Bible. And so Paul is like, hey, Peter, I'm not even sure you're, you're looking like a Christian right now. And it says he opposes him to his face. How does Peter respond? We don't quite know, but we know he goes on. And in the book of 2 Peter, when he has repented and he has truly embraced the grace of the gospel, he actually says to the church, I commend to you, Paul, and his writing and his scripture. Friends, my fear... And the American church today is that if any one of these situations would happen, our default is to split the church, is to cancel each other. Paul and Peter probably, you know, if, we were, if they were living today, that threat to unfriend somebody on whatever social media platform we may have. I would just say this. As Christians, our call is to take the plot line of culture and give it a better ending in the person and work of Jesus Christ. As Matt Chandler would also say, the church is actually built for moments like this, where we should divide by all human standards, but somehow we become the gospel visible when we live and work and worship together as family. So the question we're going to tackle over the course of three weeks, brief uh, series we're going to look at, is how do we move from divided we stand to united we follow. How do we move from divided we stand to united we follow? And we're going to look at three things because these have to be foundational principles for us in order to move in this direction. One, today we're going to look at our identity. Two, we're going to look at our peace next week. And then in two weeks, we're going to look at this picture of our foundation. So as we jump into looking at this picture of identity, I don't know if you know this name, but Rachel Dolezal, Right? I don't know if you remember that hitting your news feed or whatever you may watch, but back in 2015 and 16, uh, Rachel uh, made a lot of headlines. Now, Rachel was born with blonde hair and blue eyes. She was of German, Czech, and Swedish origin. And that is a strange way to begin 
uh, talking about a person. And the reason I'm doing that is because if you put all that together, she was remarkably white. Okay. So it's interesting that in 2010, she was hired at Eastern Washington University to teach a class called The Black Woman's Struggle or to teach a class African-American culture or to be elected, as she was, the president of the Spokane chapter of the NAACP. And not that a, a, a white woman could not hold these positions and teach these classes, but, but it makes you scratch your head a little bit. Just a little bit? Probably. Here's what happened. Dolajal self-identified as a black person. Her brother, Ezra, or stepbrother Ezra, said that she began to change her appearance in 2009. She began to use hair products that would change her hair, and she began to darken her skin and to perm her hair. And in 2012, when Ezra moved in with her, she said, everyone in Spokane thinks I'm black. Don't blow my cover. She would later on claim that her father was not indeed her father at all, but was a black man. Well, in 2015, the reason she might have made your newsfeed is she got caught. Uh, like most of us, we fail to recognize that things like Facebook and Instagram will follow us forever, and pictures remain, and this radio host who was interviewing her found a picture of her biological parents. And so he said, is this your dad? And she forgot this narrative that she was trying to hold together, and she's like, yeah, that's my dad. And he's like, wait a minute. Began to call her on it, and she lashed out at the media, how dare you question me in these ways, but at the end of the day, she came out and said, yes, I do self-identify as black, even though it's not based on my ancestry. She lost her position at the university, she lost her role with the NAACP. Let me just stop, some of y'all feel real uncomfortable right now, like these aren't the stories we're supposed to like start off with as pastors to tell in church, just take a deep breath, it's gonna, we're going to be all right. How does that hit you? Some of you might be sitting there, oh, that's ridiculous. I remember when that came out. That was terrible, right? Some of you may just be uncomfortable and wish I would get off of this by now. Here's why I say it. Even if we do think this is a ridiculous story and how could she ever imagine this would continue, I would say this is actually the water every single one of you and myself are swimming in today. And the water is this the identity narrative. The world we live in today is all about our identity. And the identity narrative says this, you have to be true to yourself to feel good about yourself. And we do it by creating or finding our own identity to achieve or to live into. Now let me give you a picture of some of the identities that are floating around today. Maybe it's like Dolezal, it's racial. Black, white, Asian. Maybe it's national, right? American. Maybe it's based on gender. Man, woman. Maybe it's this picture of being sexually open. Maybe it's the narrative or the identity of attractive or strong or authentic. Maybe it's the identity of conservative or progressive. What about the identities of being the scientifically informed or the holistic? What about the identity of being woke? Or how about this? Here's an identity achieved that I think is a twist, but Christian. Maybe. I know for me this week, a couple of identities kept swirling in my heart. It's a good father identity or a good pastor identity. 
And it was swirling because I recognized in different areas where I just felt like I was constantly failing. And that's because associated with identity, there's often this term, enough. Am I blank enough? And I think if we do some digging there, we will find the exhaustion that is worked out in us when we take a secondary identity and make it primary in our lives. I think another way we can identify our identity that we're holding to is if we look at where we're barking at other people. Because the reality is, is identities, if it's an identity achieved, it's hard to earn, hard fought. And when somebody does not agree with us or support us, we let them have it. Because identity achieved is fragile. Friends, I would argue that part of the reason we are facing division in the church is because we, by nature, try to achieve our identity. But here's where I think God's going to take us in, this, in these three verses. Is He wants us to see that in Christ, we actually receive our identity. So that's where we're going to head. As we jump into Ephesians, let me just tell you a little bit about Ephesus. It's a city. And in this ancient city, it was a crossroads of all different cultures. A major metropolitan area, you would have every uh, language and every color of skin. You would have different socioeconomic classes. You would have different levels of education. So if there was ever an incubator to see if this, um, this experiment of the church would ever work, this is it. And in this book up to this point, since we're not starting in chapter 1, Paul starts up and says, here are all of your blessings in Christ. I think, I think it says the term in Christ some 13 times. And so Paul wants us to know, if we claim to be followers of Christ, where our true and primary identity is. It's in Jesus. Then there's a prayer, and we get to chapter 2, and, and this is where we're going to be, but let me just talk you through the first 10 verses. The first three, it's really bad news. Paul is saying every single one of us, when we were born, were born mortal enemies of the God of the universe. We were literally spiritually dead, no hope in finding our way to God, and we were following Satan. But then in verse 4, it says God being rich in mercy, He saved us, He brought us to life. And then you get to chapter 10, He says He does all of these things so that we may be His workmanship created to do the good works which he planned beforehand for us to walk into. And so that's where we are today, and, and that precedes the first word in verse 11, therefore. It's saying there's bad news, there's good news of the gospel, you are his workmanship, and now this is what it looks like for you to live out as his workmanship. And do you know where he immediately goes? He goes right to saying, and that is dictated by how you work together with a group of people who are very different than you. And guess what that group of people is called? The church. Welcome to church, friends. So that's where we're headed. Ephesians 2, 11 to 13. Follow along with me. Paul writes this. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh by hand, Remember that you were at the same time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time. 
Lord, as we begin to talk about identity, we are, we are dipping into the core of our hearts. And so would you use your word today to point us towards the identity that we receive in you? And Holy Spirit, would you use your words and, and guide mine as we talk about this? And we pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. So the term I want you to know, these first two bullet points we're talking about, Paul is drawing our eyes and our hearts to the past. He says, remember, at the beginning of verse 11 and verse 12. In fact, I'm going to leave it up, oh, 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 I'm going to leave it up here on the screen for us as we dig in. So here's the first point. Remember who you were. Remember who you were. That's verse 11. So there's two things that he points out to help us remember who you were. He calls us to remember our roots and to remember our rejection. The first part of 11, what does it say? It says, remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh. All right, Gentiles is this Greek term ethna, which is another term for saying pagan. He's saying you literally were a pagan, opposed to God. And then he focuses in on some of the guilt that we may experience before we understood this concept of grace and being forgiven. Where he says you were pagans in the flesh. You were following your flesh to the point where you were doing things that were creating this debt of guilt in your heart. I don't know if you have an experience in your past that has generated immense amounts of guilt. I do. There's one in particular as I was about the age of 20. I'm not going to share it with you up here and on the interwebs, but I did something that was against everything I had ever been taught. And it crushed me. I didn't get out of bed for seven days. I was just racked with guilt. I finally got up, and it was about that time where the grace of the gospel started working on my heart. And when I finally leaned into Jesus and said, okay, I believe that you have taken this guilt away from me, it melted. Now, that doesn't mean that the enemy doesn't still whisper in my ear and try to condemn me. But I think part of what Paul is doing at the beginning of this is saying, remember some of those guilty moments so that you can actually cherish the grace that you've been shown. So remember your roots. Second thing he says is remember your rejection. He points not only to the emotions of guilt, but to former treatment. He says you are called the uncircumcision by those who called themselves circumcision, which is made by flesh by hands. So friends, this is the, the circumcision uh, are the Jewish people who for years hated Gentiles, wrongfully hated those who were uncircumcised, which uh, were indicative of pe- not being the people of God. He's actually calling to mind the rejection that they have experienced over the course of their lives. Now, let me say this. God is not saying, hey, this was really good how my people acted towards you. But he's simply saying, remember how rejection felt. In fact, he actually levels the playing field here. If you read it, it says uh, what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. So he's saying even these folks who were being self-righteous and pointing to you, that was generated by themselves. It was self-righteous, and it wasn't a work of the Holy Spirit. But here's what I think Paul is getting at by causing us to remember our roots and that guilt and that rejection is he wants us to locate, um, locate rejection and guilt as being our warranted spiritual condition before God. 
Because it's on that backdrop of how broken and rebellious we were that the gospel actually pops. He's saying we by nature are unworthy of the workmanship that he has designed us to fulfill. And in essence, every single person without Christ is spiritually devastated and desperate. So he starts off by saying, remember who you are and remember your roots and your rejection. Now here's the second thing he says, remember the impact of our identity achieved. You see, before Christ, what we do is we're constantly trying to achieve our own righteousness. And he's saying that is work that you have done in the flesh. That is not the spirit. And he says there's an impact for that life without Christ. The first thing he says is we've been alienated from community. He starts off, he says, we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise. And so here's what he's getting at with that. There are covenants in the Old Testament. There's macro covenants, right, of Adam and Noah and Abraham and David and Moses and so on and so forth that really is God saying, I am entering into a relationship with you, my people. And he's saying, uh, when you lived apart from that community, you weren't in that relationship with God. But there's also kind of micro-covenants that God gave in his law that governed the community. There were covenants of land that helped people not take advantage of one another. There were covenants with priests where the priests are the ones making intercession on the people saying, God, forgive them for their sins. There were covenants of marriage which we still uh, adhere to or practice today. And essentially what he's saying is, is, is when you were apart from my covenants, a stranger to those things, you were also a stranger to true and good community that reflects God and his character. The second thing he reminds us of is he's saying, and before in your pre-Christian life, you were also alienated from God. If you look back, It says, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ. This isn't just Jesus' name. This is his title. This is Christ being the Messiah, the Savior. He's saying when you were away from Christ, he, he was coming to rescue you. He was in the boat. He was pulling you in. And you're just over there after the shipwreck just treading water, being like, that's all right. It's a good day at the beach. I don't need to go over there and see the Savior And he's saying the impact of that with our relationship with God is is we actually have no hope without God in the world. Friends, without Christ, God's presence is actually not with us. He's absent from our conscience and not able to give us hope. So Paul wants us to remember the impact of how our pre-Christian life alienated us, not just from God, but also from true, deep community. All right, so why is Paul such a killjoy? Right? You may be like, oh, don't you know it was a bad week? Anthony, why on earth would we go here? Well, I actually think, and, and, and Todd also already mentioned this, but, but I think the picture of what happened in the wake of this tornado actually is pretty uh, powerful to demonstrate why Paul wants us to remember our guilt, our alienation. You know, what was interesting this week, in the moments after the tornado hit, there were texts flying around, are you okay, are you okay? Where do we need to, you know, get people motivated and go to different neighborhoods? And people were saying, it's amazing, Anthony. Neighbors who we've never talked to, helping neighbors, just 
linking up and going out and chainsaws and, and so on and so forth. And maybe one of the best days for me as a pastor was seeing the spreadsheet of people who were saying, I got a home, I got gas, I got a generator, I want to help, I want to come out, I got a chainsaw with the people next to them of who were desperate for help. The reason it was one of the sweetest days as a pastor is it's one of the only days in the past year and a half where we weren't fighting about something. I was looking at that spreadsheet and I was going, progressive, conservative, vaccinated, unvaccinated, this, that. And they're over there in these people's houses. We did not care. I kind of wish it happened during election season so all the goofy signs would be in our front yard and they'd have been blown to smithereens. It would have been such a perfect picture for how ridiculous we've been acting as a church. I am not minimizing. In first service, I had to confess because I got a little too wound up. I got to calm down. I'm not trying to minimize important issues that you're facing and that I'm facing, and they're important to God. But I am, as a pastor, begging you, to keep secondary issues secondary. And the reason the tornado is this amazing picture of what Paul is saying is the reason we're ready to link arms is because the ground was entirely level. We were devastated and desperate and we needed saving and help. There was no self-righteousness in those moments. That's why Paul wants us to remember. To look around us as a church and say, every single person in here, apart from Christ, are spiritually devastated and desperate. And we're all in it together. Do you know why the the confession every week is a prayer that we read aloud together? It's not because we're not creative. Well, maybe sometimes we're not creative. but, But it's because it is good for us to confess humbly, I am a broken rebel. And it's also good for us to hear the voice of that person we can't stomach saying the same thing because the ground is level the foot of the cross here's the third main point verse 13 Paul then points us to what it looks like to live into our identity received he starts off by saying this but now But now, so that was the past. That was life before Jesus. But now, you know what but stands for? Behold the underlying truth. This is pointing us to the deeper truth than our past. If we have called on Christ in faith, first of all, we see a new identity. There's the word again, in Christ. In Christ. He's comparing this to in the flesh in verse 11. He's saying, if you've called on Christ, there is a new identity. And I've said a good picture of this is an airplane. Christ is the airplane. Where do you want to be relative to the airplane? In it. Not next to it. Not looking at it. Not on the outside of it. A more robust picture of this for me emerged in the last couple weeks, seeing these planes leaving Afghanistan and that safety and that protection. Christ is saying, that is your identity. He says, you who were far off, that's comparing to verse 12, have been brought near. Friends, what's the nature of that verb? Does it say you worked really hard to get that identity? Now that is a passive verb. God acted on us. 
and brought us near based on nothing that we bring to the table. It is received. We don't work for it. Here's a picture of Jesus lamenting people who he's called and who reject him outright. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you are not willing. Here's why I love this picture. is because it does away with this individualism of salvation. He doesn't say God has five billion wings and he's gathering each person under each individual wings. It's this picture of gathering. Chicks under one wing together. Brian Chappell would put it this way. We are pushed together into the arms of Christ with equal recognition of our total need for him and equal dependence upon his grace regardless of what was was characterized our flesh in the past. Friends, it's exhausting to try to achieve our identity. We will constantly be saying, am I enough? Am I enough? Am I enough? And when somebody gets in our way of not being enough, we'll eviscerate them with our words or with our fingers. One person puts it this way. Because he's not, God's not saying do away with any other identity. Right? Around the throne, it will be every tribe, tongue, and nation. Unique people standing before him. But he is saying there is a primary identity that is received that if you receive it, you can actually rest when it comes to all the other areas that you have to exist as a father and a mother and whatever else identity you could have, a friend, and so on and so forth. He says, it takes the labels of the flesh and pastes over top of it God's own child, heir of the promises and glory of heaven. It stops our striving and causes us to rest. And at the very end, how is this accomplished? What it says is accomplished through the blood of Christ. Again, it is His work, it is His blood, and it is His sacrifice that we live into. So this is just the beginning, friends. But I would just say this. This week, try to figure out, is there a secondary identity that you're making primary? Is there an identity that you are trying tirelessly to achieve versus receiving the identity that is already offered to you in Jesus Christ? How do we begin to move from united we stand, or from divided we stand to united we follow? Well, it's first by receiving His identity and believing that He is enough. Let me close this in prayer. Father, help. Even after this, I know I will go home and my temptation will be to try to achieve some form of identity on my own power rather than resting in You. Father, help. We are so prone to leave here and still get ticked off at the person next to us who doesn't think ideologically the same we do. Help us to see that level ground at the cross. And Lord, if there is somebody who does not yet believe and has simply received the identity offered to them by faith in You, King Jesus, draw them to Yourself. Protect us as a church. Lord, we have, where we have erred and moved into the side of ideology over the Gospel, Convict us and cause us to repent and help us to follow you. 
We love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.